Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Boothcast. Before I throw you over to my interview with local sensation and South African hero, Sean Rice, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the Shore and Partners Race Week. Now, the Shore and Partners Race Week is a fantastic concept. It incorporates the West Coast Downwinder, the Ben Hewitt uh, Sunset Series, and you've got the Doctor Race and the Dash for Cash on the Friday. So you've got all these fantastic races coming together to give you that real community vibe, this sort of a paddling hub around Sorrento. And if you haven't heard about the race, you should really get involved this year. It will happen in November towards the end of the year. Fingers crossed, nothing going wrong. We, we get through all this COVID stuff, but it's going to be another exciting year, the second year of the concept. Um, you're going to have the best of the best there. You're going to have all your friends there. So if you haven't heard about it, check out www.oceanpaddler.com. Um, and I hope to see you there. It's going to be another exciting year of the Shore and Partners Race Week. So now I'm going to throw you over to my interview with Perth local paddling sensation, Sean Rice. Hello and welcome to Boothcast. On Boothcast, I speak to people who've inspired me about sport, business and the winning mindset. Today's Boothcast is brought to you by Booth Training. Booth Training is your online paddling solution to achieve your goals and become the best paddler you can be. Today on Boothcast, I have Sean Rice. Sean is from South Africa. He's paddled in all of the, the major South African river races, ocean ski races, um, big on the surf ski scene in Australia now. He's uh, won the Ukamos, I, I can't ever say that properly, the Fish, um, and a lot of other major races in South Africa in the early years. And it's uh, really great to have you on, Sean. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Good to be here. Thanks, Bibi. And um, I want to find out a little bit about you, um, where you grew up, and, and how you got involved into, in paddling in the early years. Okay, I, blew, I grew up um, in Durban, in South Africa. Um, I was at a school that um, had canoeing as a, as a sport and a friend of mine at um, school paddled and he got me involved. I ended up paddling all the schoolboy races through a couple of seasons. Um, had a bit of a talent for it and did all right and really enjoyed it. So that's how it all started. Eh? And so when you say schoolboy races, what, what, what's, what are schoolboy races? Like do you have kayaking at, in South Africa as a, as a sport? Yeah, so it's, um, a number of the private schools used to um, have um, paddling as a sport. Well, in fact, some of the government schools as well. Um, it was a reasonably big sport. You probably have a couple of hundred or certainly a couple of hundred at, at races. Um, it was mainly short um, river races, um, relatively gentle rivers, 10, 15 kilometer races. And they had a bit of a series, a bit of a league going. So that's how it started. Eh? And so when you were doing those early day um, kayaking races at school, um, were you competitive from the get-go or was it something you gradually worked into? Um, yeah, I did a reasonable amount of swimming before that. Yeah. And I was relatively fit. I mean, I used to play other sports as well. I used to play rugby. And, and, so it, it didn't take me long to, to get into it. And sort of certainly sort of halfway through the first season, I was competitive enough, you know? So, yeah. yeah. And, when, and when you first picked up a kayak, how old were you? Probably 13 or 14, I suppose. Yeah. 
and and you enjoyed it straight away was it something you wanted to do or were you playing rugby as well because i know rugby is a big sport in south africa were you doing sort of both at the same time or were you just switch over to kayaking straight away yeah it's cool i played a lot of rugby um and i was um and the first team for quite a few years although i was at a small school um i ended up playing um sort of um representative level i ended up playing for um they had a divided team north natal and south natal i played north natal and one of the curtain raises for the springboks and in one of the big stadiums there when I was, I don't know, 14 or 15. So, yes, I was, I was always quite active. I used to surf a bit as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I was always quite physical. Quite physical. And so when you were surfing and, and being in the ocean, you had an affinity, obviously, with it from the, from the get-go, and you still do now. Um, what was it about the ocean that, that drew you to it, and, and why did you enjoy paddling so much? I've always just loved the water eh? and the way the water works and how you can use the water to, you know, to get a sensation of movement. So that's always, I've always been very, very interested in, um, in the sea. And in fact, I've loved the sea. So from diving to surfing or body surfing or paddling or whatever it is, I always just love. In fact, there's really a day that goes by that I'm not in the ocean somewhere. You know? Yeah, I always see you down at uh, Hillary's uh, training with the, the guys down there and, and paddling. And you've been obviously paddling for a long time now. Um, what was your first event you ever did? Like after this, obviously the schoolboy stuff, when did you start getting involved in the river racing? Um, I did the Doozy Marathon, which is a race from Pinamarisburg to Durban when I was very young. I must have been 15 or 16, I think. And that's a three-day race. It's quite a, it's quite a big event. Quite a bit of running involved as well. Um, <clears throat> so I did those kind of races early. I made a sprint um, team as a junior, and, and that was in the last year of school, so that would have been 76, I think. Um, and that was the sort of team that really gave me a bit of a springboard into sort of competitive paddling, really. Um, what it was, was the national um, sprint team went over to race a few um, international races in, in Europe. And we were going to go to world champs. Um, and that all fell apart with the whole apartheid. So there were guys in that team that um, I really looked up to that were the legends of the sport. There was Tony Scott in that team. There was Devin Warlock. Um, Robbie Stewart was in there, Murray's um, father. Um, there was a guy, Peter Peacock, who was a great sprinter. Um, and then there were two juniors selected, and we raced in Belgium, I think, in Mechelen and Ghent. And we raced somewhere in, in Switzerland, Rappersville, I think it was. And we were going to go to um, the world champs, and um, the Eastern Bloc countries boycotted <laughs> because we were South African and, and the whole apartheid. And that was the first time I really realized that there was a problem in South Africa. So that was. Um, I was probably 18, 17, 18, I suppose. And it actually came as quite a shock to me. I was wondering why we were pariahs and what we had done wrong, you know, that everyone didn't want to, didn't want to join in. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, so, it's very yeah, so interesting, that, was, that whole situation. I, I didn't really know, obviously know much about apartheid until 
I guess I started seeing to the South Africans and started hearing obviously their stories and obviously with Oscar's story the other day and hearing the different um, things that went wrong, I didn't really understand it because you don't really get taught it at school or anything like that unless you research into it yourself, especially for people my age. So can you tell us a little bit about what happened there and, and why there was that sort of restriction on South Africa? Um, well, it's common knowledge. I mean, there was a white South African government dominating a vast majority of people who didn't have the vote and things needed to change basically so the pressure from the outside world and one of the ways of applying pressure was sanctions and um, boycotts you know so it was that period and that must have been that must have been really hard as a young athlete to try and obviously shape his future and shape his paddling career when you sort of your opportunities get taken away from you well, it's, it's like a double-edged sword, really, I think, you know, it's, um, there were opportunities taken away in the whole Olympics thing, which actually might not be such a bad thing to miss, but um, the whole Olympics, um, you know, wasn't available to us. Um, but what it did do is it progressed the sport in other ways, you know, so it, there, was a, there was a huge marathon racing scene, which, which the sport hadn't developed anywhere else, really, to such an extent. Um, it also allowed us to do a lot of different types of um, facets of the sport. So I did slalom, I did whitewater, I did marathon racing, and I did sprints, and I did a lot of surf ski paddling. Whereas if I was seriously competitive and you had to specialize in one area, I would have just been pigeonholed into one, one category, you know? And I think that's what happens now. If you're a sprinter, you don't even know what a J-stroke is, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. It's, um, it is quite interesting these days when you, people do get pigeonholed into certain like, sports. I know for myself, I like to do as many different ones as I can because I just enjoy them all and I think paddling's paddling. But um, I know you obviously did, you did wild water, you did um, slalom and you did um, downwater river marathon racing, you did ocean ski racing. Um, how did you sort of, which, which one did you pick up first and then when did you sort of divert into different ones or was it just like you did whatever race there was on each weekend? Well, in South Africa, yeah, there, was, there was races every single weekend and I used to race during the week. I used to do time trials as well. So I did a huge amount of racing and the season there is, you have a marathon season over the summer period. Then you have a white water season, which is quite short, it's only a couple of months. And that's normally around March, um, April, May. And then the sprint season starts and sprint champs are normally in July. And then it goes back into a, a Cape Town series um, in the winter time. And that's the Berg Marathon and the long distance, really long distance racing. So it, that's pretty much how it progresses. And then the surf ski racing overlapped that and that was typically during the summer months. Although there were quite a few races in the winter. So, so who were who your main competitors? Um, well, in the very early days, it was Tony Scott was the man pretty much in surf ski paddling. And there were, I mean, there were any number of, paddling in South Africa is quite a big sport, eh? so it's, there, were a, there were a huge number of, of paddlers. Um, I grew up with Oscar, or not far away from Oscar, so it, um, I did quite a bit of paddling with, um, under sort of Paul's guidance, Oscar's father. Um, he used to coach us, he used to take us down. 
I was a little bit older than Oscar, a couple of years older, and Paul took me under his wing to paddle with Oscar in a double. And we actually had quite a few good races. We'd won um, one of the big SAK2 races when we were a junior. And I think Oscar was only 15 or whatever, and I was probably 17 or so. Yeah. Um, hey. After that, um, there were there were any number of guys. There was a guy Jerome Truran, which who was an excellent white water paddler. Um, he ended up going to England because of the whole apartheid thing, and he paddled for the English team. And I think he got second at Worlds in a couple of. So he was he was one of the one of the influences in white water. There was a crew of us that used to do quite a bit of slalom paddling. Um, amongst those was Ron Sampson. I suppose he was probably the, the standout. Um, then in the latter years, there were a whole heap of, um, you know, river paddlers like Mark Perrow and Herifelt and, you know, those kind of paddlers that, that were around. Um, and then obviously in surfski paddling, Oscar was the man, Oscar and Herman. Um, and amongst a whole heap of others, there were some really talented surfski paddlers that never went to, to the Molokai and never got the publicity that Oscar did. I'm thinking of guys like Grant Williston, who was a great, great paddler. Yeah, for sure. So there's lots of guys around you at the time competing and, and doing really well. And so what what was sort of your first pathway? Like, like so let's, let's talk about um, marathon paddling in South Africa. I know you ended up going on and winning a lot of those big races in South Africa. Can you speak about your first couple of races and, and how you gradually got involved? Um, I'd had joined a local club in Durban. Um, it was just a small club. Um, they were really, really supportive, actually. They gave me a few boats to, to start out. Um, I ended up doing all the local river races. Um, then um, teamed up with um, Paul and did a lot of training with them. And Tony Scott, in fact, as well. And I was really young. I was sort of the junior of the squad. but that really gave me a good basis. I mean, those um, early days, they used to do a huge amount of miles, and like huge. And, and I think that gave me a really good base to sort of springboard everything from. But when we came back from that um, sprint team that I was telling you about in 77, and one of the guys that was in there, Bevan Warlock, was going to do the Peace London race, which is a big race, it's a 250 or 260 kilometer race over four days. Um, down in um, South Africa um, and he suggested I come down and do that and I mean I had no idea I was done a huge small river races and, and some sprint sprint racing and anyway so I did three or four months of quite well I thought it was quite long stuff I was doing two hour paddles <laughs> yeah and went down and just race it's <laughs> still, um, still very long for people today those two hour paddles Ah, oh, it's not long at all when you, yeah. I mean, the first day of that race probably took me eight hours, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so. so how did you um, deal with paddling that long after going from sprint kayaks and then you're all of a sudden doing, you're probably doing thousand meter races or something or 10 Ks or whatever at, at marathons. I mean, at sprint races, and then you're all of a sudden you're going in and doing eight hour paddles. Like, was it a big change? It's a huge change, but your body does get conditioned to it. Eh? Um, when I was, really young i'd and i don't know why we did this but we ended up doing a lot of like seriously long endurance things and the school i was at had 
a walk, which was about 90 kilometers. So it was over the Comrades Marathon course. You might have heard of that. It's a race between Marisburg and Durban. And the school used to do that as a walk in one day. So it's, I mean, that kind of insurance stuff. Yeah, jeez. Um, so I did that a couple of times. Um, and then um, I did the doozy when I was 15, and that's a serious endurance race. So it's, I, I suppose I was sort of finishing myself really early, but still had no idea about the distance of the, the portals to these lands. But by the second time I did it, I had a better idea and managed to train properly for it. And when you're growing up in South Africa, is endurance type racing really pushed? Like, is that like, because obviously you had the apartheid and it created almost this racing scene in South Africa. Was it something that was just ingrained in you from a young, young age that like we go and do these crazy long races? Because now, like for someone like me, like thinking about doing a 90 kilometer walk or doing, um, I don't know, an eight hour ski paddle in one day just sounds a bit ridiculous because I, I've just never done it. So I, I'm, I'm always, I'm super intimidated by that. Um, look, most of the racing was that hour and a half, two hour mark. So it's, but the, the bulk of the races went long, but the really big ones, like the Amkamas Marathon was a long race. You know, the Val Marathon, seriously long race, the, the Berg, that's um, the Peace London. And those are sort of the pinnacle. So not everyone did those. It was just, it sort of narrowed the field a bit, you know, whereas the local races, you'd have far more numbers. And I suppose that's why the fish has got that many numbers because it's actually quite a short race by their standards. It's sort of 35 k's a day, you know, that kind of distance. And, and with like, so let's talk about the fish, for example. I know you ended up winning that race. Um, what mm -hmm. does the fish involve, like for somebody who has no idea about South African marathon river racing at all? Um, is, it, is it near Cape Town, the fish? Yeah, sort of halfway between Cape Town and Durban, I suppose. It's more towards um, Port Elizabeth. It's, um, it's, a, it's a fantastic race to do just because you're away, you're in the middle of the crew, which is a desert, and this little oasis with a, a green ribbon running through with this fantastic little river. Um, the river itself is relatively small, it's a couple of weirds, but nothing intimidating at all. It's just fast-flowing fast water. Um, it's a competitive race. It's, um, it's an exciting one to do, you know, just because it's, it's really competitive at the front of that field. And yeah, and the depth run a long way in it, you know, so even if you're coming 50th, you're still probably quite a bit of paddling. Yeah, yeah, so there's like a lot of um, good paddlers paddling there. Can you talk us through your first win and what it, what it took you for? Because I know you know a guy who really focuses on winning. You're just like going out there and paddling and experiencing and, and being amongst it. Um, but you did have a few wins along the way. Can you tell us when you won your first fish? Um, I only got into the fish relatively late because I always used to spend most of my time in Europe in, over the summer months. So I think I went to Spain. I think I did that series eight times and I did a lot of racing in, in Europe. So if, if you made a team, you would generally um, go and race you know, somewhere else. So I, I raced in America and I did quite a bit of whitewater racing or downriver racing in Europe as well. So um, the first time I did it, I think the race had been running for three or four years already. Um, and 
I just think it was SAK1, so there was the, um, the singles marathon champs. Um, and I just did a blind. And so I hadn't gone there and paddled it beforehand. I think I won the first day and there was a paddler, Daniel Conradi, he's actually died of a heart attack, but um, he ended up winning and I ended up coming second. And I think that field um, was really strong and that was the first time I'd, I'd, I'd done the fish. I mean, I'd heard about it, but, um, and realized that it was that strong just because I think it attracts everyone. So it attracts the Cape Town paddlers, the Durban paddlers, and the Transvaal paddlers. So it's from Johannesburg. Um, whereas a lot of the other races, like the Cape Town races, would generally only attract the Cape Town paddlers and a few really good paddlers from the Transvaal, but that's it. Um, and same with the, the, the Durban scene. So. Whereas the fish scene, because everyone had to travel to it and it was over a long weekend, it seemed to attract everyone. And it, it grew in numbers from there. But I mean, that race is big. There's, I don't know exactly how many, but probably a couple of thousand paddlers. And then after that, um, the race became a K2 race, a, a doubles race. Um, I did it with Colin Simpkins, my partner, and I think we got a second and a third, and then we won it. Yeah, and what and what years were you racing? Were you racing in like the late eighties, or was it? That be right? Um, yeah, that would have been eighties, nineties. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I know Brennan was born in ninety, and I was actually having a look at a picture the other day, and she was a little baby down at the fish. So it would have been early nineties as well. In fact, yeah. 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 So you're racing through there, and then can you talk us through something like the Unkamos? Well, the Mkomas is, um, it's got serious rapids in. Mkomas is a big race. Um, it's, it's long. It's got a lot of volume in the river. Um, and it's completely isolated. So it's warm water. It's normally sort of chocolate brown because of all the runoff um, that's in the river. Um, it isn't dirty. It's just, it's just oil. Um, it's, there's some grade three rapids pretty much continuously through that. So it's, um, it's of course you do need to know, you, need, you do need to be proficient in that kind of water to make it. So that reduces the numbers, but you still used to get three or 400 paddlers that, that did, did that race. And amongst the paddlers that was seen to be the race to win here. Yeah, so, so amongst the elites, that was the one you really wanted to win. I think I won it in, in, in the K1 and then I won it in doubles with Colin as well. And what was it like obviously winning those races when you were a youngster? Like, was it, did it mean a lot to you to win a, an Unkamas or a, a fish or any of these other marathon races? Or was it just like, I just wanted to go there and experience it? Or how, did, how was your mindset back then? Um, I seem to have a slightly different mindset from the other guys that were seriously competitive, you know? So um, I didn't really focus on a race and try and target that and, um, I used to race a lot um, and if I didn't win, it didn't upset me. So <laughs> I seem to have a different, whereas a lot of the other guys I noticed if they didn't win, it was, it was, it was a serious issue. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it sort of took the pressure off me. So I always did it for fun. I didn't ever do it to win it. I mean, obviously I, I loved winning. It was, it was fantastic. And 
don't get me wrong, I am competitive. I mean, I, I do try. But yeah. I just, maybe I just didn't have the commitment that the other guys did to, to focus on one specific thing. I'd rather go and have fun. So even if there was a good race the weekend before, some of the guys would rest or some of the guys would, wouldn't do it because they'd have to travel too far. And I didn't care about that. I'd, I would go and do it just because it was going to be fun. So we had sort of slightly different approaches to it. Yeah. yeah, and you were just focusing on having fun and just going to as many events as you could. But you obviously had a lot of success as well. Like, did you race like other river races as well? Like, the, the I know you mentioned the Doozy and uh, these other ones. Did you win? You end up winning those? Oh no, the Doozy had far too much running. Eh? No, I was yeah. lucky to come in the top thirty in the Doozy. Yeah, uh, in fact, it, it was a flood year, and I think I came thirtieth or twenty eighth or something. So yeah, no, I wasn't competitive in the Doozy. The fifty miler is another one. Um, that is over the last two days of the doozy. Now there are two serious runs in that, um, but I think I came second one year. So, um, yeah. So I mean, I wasn't adverse to. I mean, I I could run if I really had to, but I wasn't the best, the best runner. I could never ever run as fast as as the the properly competitive doozy paddlers can. No, no, close. And who were the proper competitive doozy pallers at the time? Well, that's in those days there was Grandpa Ellis. Um, he was called the Doozy King. I think he had won eleven doozies, so he was he, he was the man. Um, but I mean, there were a whole host of them. There was a couple of guys from Durban, um, Bruce Venker, odd name, but he, he was always competitive in the doozy. There was um, there was Mark Conway. There was a whole heap of local guys that. Would always come second, third. Yeah, that would always give it a go. And then, I mean, and then it's Andy Burkett, I suppose, and Hank gives it a, a, a go. Yeah, and there's obviously a lot of history steeped in all these different marathon races in, in um, South Africa, which we probably don't understand coming from Australia. Like the Avon descent, probably our only real river race, and a, a lot of the surfing guys and all the, the kayak guys don't really cross over and do that. It was not really like that. South African mentality where you just did everything. It was very much yeah. your pigeonholed over here, which is obviously something different. I know you live here now. Is, is that something you can't really understand? Like why people don't do a bit of everything or is it? Oh, no, I can understand that completely. I mean, if you really want to get good at something, you have to specialize. Um, but I think with the Olympics being taken away from us, um, we didn't have that pinnacle that we were all aiming to, towards. And the sport just developed in a different direction. So it was more about sort of almost a bit of a social scene as well as having fun. And that there are some fantastic rivers in South Africa, so they're great ones to enjoy. Yeah. And speaking of the Olympics, we like was that something ever on your radar to go to? Because obviously you were going over to Europe and racing most of the, yeah. the winters, I guess, in South Africa. Um, how was that whole situation for you? Were, you? were you like a bit disappointed you couldn't go or you just embrace the situation uh, yeah the olympics was probably one of the one of the disappointments um we were allowed back into the olympics at, in at barcelona um but at that stage i was working full-time and and i had the option of either trying for the sprint team or trying for the slalom team um that in hindsight, I should have opted for the sprint 
the team because they selected a lot more people and it would have been an easier team to make. And I really wanted to go to the Olympics. Um, I wouldn't have been competitive like any of the other Africans, but it would have been it would have been really good to go there. Um, yes, yeah, so I went to the three slalom trials. Um, at that stage, they'd got a um, an Austrian coach, Norbert Sattler, in to, to coach the slalom team. Um, they'd pre-selected it it's a sort of a base team, um, which I could have been part of, um, but it meant that I had to give up work and I had to go and live in a little town called Escort, where they'd set up their, their base. Um, I wasn't prepared to do that, so I just kept working and I went to the trials. They selected a four-man team. I think I, from memory, I came second and third and fourth. So I would have thought I would have got into the team. In fact, I think I might have won one of those trials. I think I won one of those trials. And then, but I was quite a bit older than the, the rest of the guys. And I wasn't training in the squad. And I think they saw that I was just coming back for, you know, I wasn't going to be a long-term prospect in the silent team. Yeah. So I think that might have influenced the decision. But anyway, I wasn't selected. So that was a, a big disappointment. Geez, it must have been a very subjective uh, selection panel if it was you were winning selection trials and you didn't make the team and you were taking four and you didn't finish worse than fourth. That, that doesn't really make sense, does it? Well, it's, look, it was the other guys were relatively close. I think we were all, there, were, there, were, there were four of us in the, in, in the hunt for it. And um, I pro progressively got worse. <laughs> so, I think the first trial I, was, <laughs> I did my best and I progressively got worse. In the, yeah. in the trials we did. And I think by the time um, the decision was made, I think the logic was, look, these guys are improving. Sean's staying where he is. You know, by the time the Olympics come, these guys would have made a jump. Yeah. Um, they did offer me an opportunity to go and race um, at Slalom Race in Italy at Val de Sol. Um, and... You know, if I'd beaten the guys there, then I would have a backdoor, you know, entry into the team after they'd selected it. Um, now, that was a disappointment because I did go there and actually raced at Down River Racing um, the week before the slalom, so I wasn't that, that motivated. But, but, but um, it was, the um, event was held on quite a big course, so it was quite a big um, slalom course. And I think I had a bit of an edge on the other guys when it came to bigger water. And I was the best of the South Africans, but I still didn't get selected. So that was a serious disappointment. Who did you upset? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it was just that I was at the wrong end of the, the scale. You know, I was coming back and I was, I was too old, basically. I wasn't the, I wasn't the future of it. Yeah, but I, I don't know. That doesn't really make sense to me. I guess most people go to the Olympics and then they retire. You don't get told you retire before you go to the Olympics. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Anyway, look, that's, yeah. that's my story. I'm, yeah. yeah, that's just the way I'm it sure is. The, but, the, I'm sure the guys that made the team will have another another version of it. <laughs> that's all right. I'll be on your side, Sean. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> so we got we got the um. See, when you were growing up, you're obviously training a fair bit with Oscar and Herman and Walter and, and the the Chilopskis. How was, how was training with those guys when they were younger? Because obviously I know Oscar now, but I didn't know him then. What, was, there, was it the same sort of spirit and same person, same character that we have today? Or was it a bit more serious, a bit more focused? 
Oscar's always been seriously competitive. So he is very, very, very focused and very competitive. And he's always been. And he's not shy with self-promotion. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he was always pushing himself. He was always at the forefront. Um, he'd, when I first started paddling, um, I was a couple of years older than Oscar. So I was obviously better than him. With the age and I've been paddling a little longer. So in the early years when we trained together, it, um, it, it was mainly under Paul. Um, in fact, an interesting little story, when we went to go and do the Vile Marathon, it's an 80k race, and no, in fact even longer than that, I think it might be a 120 kilometer race over two days. Um, so we had to do a bit of distance for it. Now because we were only tiny little guys, um, Paul allowed us to do short laps of the bay when they were doing the long laps. And we used to be on the water for like two hours or three hours. And by the time we finished it, we used to see them coming in the distance and just pretend we were paddling. So we weren't touching the water. We were just stuck. <laughs> we were just stroking until I came out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's the kind of training we were doing. Yeah, we were just hiding. But, yeah, but 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 having said that, that they had a really good squad on that bay, and Tony Scott was sort of the, the backbone of it, and he trained seriously hard, um, and I had quite a few years of sort of hanging on his wave, going around the bay, and that was excellent endurance training. It was, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, the kind of training Tony Scott would do. Um, I did a Numkamas marathon with him once um, when he was towards the end of his career. Um, he had this idea in his head, and he's probably the only guy that could do it, is he used to do the same distance of the race the weekend before. So the Amkamas, I think, was 120 Ks or whatever it was. The weekend before, um, we jumped in a double. We did 120 kilometers in one day. Finished late night. <laughs> and um, so we rested up during the week and to, to race the Amkamas um the following weekend now the first day we won it but by the time it got to the end of the first day i was taking strain the second day um jumped into the boat i was like I, I could hardly paddle i was so i was i was so stuffed and um i think oscar and matt carlisle actually won it that year but that's the kind of training you used to do. So for the PS London, you used to do exactly the same thing. So you used to paddle 80 kilometers, 48, 68, or whatever it was, another 50 odd um, consecutively the week before the race. So he used to do, he used to do 260 kilometers in the week before the race. So and did it work for amazing. him? It worked for him, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he did epic stuff. So he paddled from Port Elizabeth to East London. He did. He paddled from Cape Town to Durban. You know. Wow, how far is that? Is that a couple of thousand kilometers? A couple of thousand, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, wow. And that was just like kind of like the norm for you guys at that, at that time. You were just paddling long distances. Like, what, like you had a lot of big races. So, if you talk through like the P to East London, what, yeah. what year was that created and, and how, how did it become so big? I did one, of the, one of the first ones. Um, I did, I think my first one was in, must have been around 79, I suppose. And they might have had one before that. Or, but that's quite an interesting race. It was, 
um, there's quite a legend um, character down in, um, in East London, John Woods. And um, he challenged one of the, the runners, who's quite a famous runner, um, Paul, to a race from Paul Elizabeth to East London. So the runner ran and, 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 and John paddled. Um, but it was a non-stop race, I think. So, they, so it was 250Ks or whatever, but they just went. So there was no stopping. Well, start in the early morning and finish at night time. Yeah, yeah. And then I think if they were behind, they might have given that to carry on at night a bit to, to, to make sure. That, but John had to swim the rivers, you know, and the rivers got bull sharks in it. And, and there's some big rivers that flow through. So it was, it was quite an epic race. And because that scenery is, is unbelievable. I mean, that, that coastline is, is spectacular. There's bombies out there. You always get seriously good surf and big surf. Um, the prevailing wind during that time is southwest, so it really is a spectacular coastline. Um, it's quite unique as well in that there's a current that flows against you, so everything backs up, you know, so if you're getting the wind with you and the current against you, you might get these monster, I mean, there's, there's stories of, well, not stories, there's boats, there's ships that have gone down, there's 100-foot waves that break on them, you know, when, when there's a storm and the current against the current, so... It's quite a, it's quite a, I mean, a, a very unusual coastline, and it's a fantastic race to do. And if ever they'd brought the the teams race back again, I suggest you do it. It's fantastic. Yeah, I, I actually was speaking to Jeremy Cotter the other day, and he was talking about the teams races he did uh, back in probably two thousand seven, two thousand eight. And he said it was just unreal. Mm. They sort of did doubles, yeah. and then they did the, the obviously the the single bib yeah. as well, and then the doubles, and they said it was just really fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think they only had the teams race one one year, but um, because it was a challenge more than a race, and that's how the, the, the whole concept of it. Um, the initial, the first couple of years, um, if the wind was blowing against you, they would still hold the race, so you would just paddle into the wind. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas now it's become more of a more of a race and more of, well, not not more of a race, but more of a more of a pleasurable experience. So if they if they it's going to be a headwind, and they, they change it around, and, and you paddle back down with the wind. Yeah, no, it's a, there was always those challenges. I know you were telling me before that you used to like to just go do expedition paddling as well. Like, can you tell us about a couple of your expeditions that you went on, and you just sort of paddled uncharted waters? Yeah, so when we were, when when I was young, um, there was a group of us, and it was actually a really cool group that um, they were all enthusiastic, eh? and. So one guy would just phone up and there'd be a bit of rain in the, in the mountains and we'd go up and paddle a section of the Tugela River or the Amkamas River and it was pretty well uncharted. Eh? I mean, I remember the first couple of trips on the Tugela, there were even crocs in the river. And I remember waking up um, on the bank of a river where we'd slept overnight um, to find a croc sharing the same, <laughs> the same bank as us, you know? <laughs> Yeah, so oh, crazy. Yeah, and um, so it, we'd we'd look for really big sections of river, so big rapids, small waterfalls. And we'd wait for the um, the rain to flow, and I mean that was exciting times. It was it was pretty pretty good. We had um, so we did a lot of rivers that not too many people had had even seen or even or, or even get to. You know that. You'd get in through some farmer's land and you'd paddle down to, into a valley and 
There might be some local people living in the valley, but that's it. You know, you have to walk in and out. Um, so it, we did a lot of that kind of tripping. We'd, and then after that, I just took that a bit further. Did quite a bit of tripping in Europe, actually, and you know, in Austria and some of those bigger rivers. Every time I'd go and do a slalom race or a whitewater race, we'd, we'd end up tripping. We had three months in um, America where we did some amazing tripping. So went over to do a slalom race. It was the Pan, Pan Am series. So the Europeans used to go across to America to race. Yeah. But you had to qualify to, to do it. So the, the Americans had this conference. So, so we went and raced in, um, in California. And then we had to sit it out. We, well, we had to wait for about three months because we had to qualify. For it. So we had to wait for about three months before the, the big race in Nicoli, which is Tennessee, which is the other side of the country. So during that time, we just did trips to all up and down the Rocky Mountains, so the Salmon River and the Snake. And we did um, an unbelievable run on um, the Payette River, so the North Fork of the Payette. Um, and we drove up on, on a day, and I can't remember why we had to get back, but we were in a rush. So we actually drove, <laughs> we drove a couple of thousand kilometers to get there. Um, and we got there sort of mid-morning, I think it was, or late morning, and we just drove up the river without scouting it, really, just looking out from the car, looking down at it, <laughs> and got in at the top and paddled it, and, that, and that, that's unbelievable water. So what happens is there's a hydroelectric dam, and it goes into a really steep gorge, and on one side of the river, they blasted to build a, a railway line, and on the other side, they blasted to build the road, so it's on sheer. And all that rubble they just dumped in the river. So the river hasn't had a chance to find its natural course, you know. So you just get these incredibly big boulders and <laughs> monster stoppers. And, yeah, it's, 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 if you get a chance, you should check it out on um, these YouTube videos of it now. But in those days, and that would have been maybe... What's, what's it called again? The North Fork of the Payette, P-A-Y-E-T-T-E, -T -T -E, I think. I'll see if but, I can find a video while you're talking. Yeah, but we did that, um, and there was an American guy with us, and he had never done the, the thing before, but he had done a, a heap of trip, tripping, but he had just heard about it, um, because it was on a Peter Stuyvesant ad. You know, the yeah. Peter Stuyvesant cigarettes? <laughs> no, I, have, I don't know that. Yeah, they used to have one last challenge for mankind, you know, that kind of thing, and the Payette River was one of them. <laughs> Oh, I lost it. Here it is. So this is the North Fork of the Payette River. Yeah. So this is what you're talking about, right? This is basically what you would have been seeing, or is this something a bit different? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's probably it. Yeah. In fact, that would be it. And when you were when but you were going is... down here, obviously it was pretty uncharted, and you probably got no phones, no what? contact, or was it just you just winging it? No, no, no phones. No, um, no safety. No, it's very undergunned, really. I mean, we had life jackets, but other than that, that was it. And but, did you have? Um, did you have like team? Like, it was obviously a few of you paddling, but were you paddling in these type of slalom boats? Yeah, we were in plastic boats. They were Prion boats, which is a German manufacturer. Dancers, I think, in those days. Um, yeah. But that. There were, there were four of us in the car and we only had three boats. 
So, um, one of the guys actually ended up falling out because it's pretty continuous, like this the whole way. He ended yeah. up falling out. He scrambled to the side and I managed to get his boat in. And the car came along and the, the other guy that was driving jumped into his boat and paddled the rest of it. And that guy had to just walk down the river and find the car. <laughs> so there was a bit of competition to actually paddle it because we were, yeah. we were gone and eat, you know. But you were sort yeah. of like just pioneering these type of paddles, I guess, in a way, because you just wanted to check out different sceneries. And I know, like, I've only paddled once. I actually paddled on the Avon with um, with, with Brendan, and we did the K3, yeah. and we went down, and that was just really cool because that's something I'd never done. And it was just, like, for me, it was like kind of like paddling an uncharted river. Like, that's why I like going, traveling into different places and paddling, because you get to paddle in different water, and you get to see how it feels. That must have been something that yeah. you really enjoyed about paddling. No, exactly. Hey? Yep. I mean, some of the some some of the really good races for me were the races in Spain. I used to love going to race there. It was it was warm. It was competitive. You could it was really social as well. So you, you could party as well, and it was it was it was just good. So I ended up doing those races a lot. Yeah. And in Spain, there isn't just the cellar. There's a whole series of races. There's six or eight races, and that was that was always fun. Yeah, and um, when you, so when you spent, the you Kikina, spent... which is a really long um, race in Denmark. Um, yeah. No, that was an interesting one as well. So they had a team selection um, in South Africa, and it was over the winter time. So we did a couple of trials, like long trials as well. What, what year was this? Um, that would have been. Eighty four, maybe. Yeah. Eighty four, eighty five. Um. Anyway, they did the selection trials. Then part of the deal was that you had to race the Berg River Marathon, which is two hundred and sixty kilometers. So we finished the trials on the Wednesday, raced the um, the Berg, flew out straight after the Berg, and we couldn't fly straight to Denmark because we were South African. We weren't we weren't welcome, so we had to fly into Belgium and then drive from there. So we paddled as Belgian paddlers, drove from there to the Gadina. And the Gadina, the first day is 80 Ks and the second day is, I mean, there's monster racing. So again, the first day, um, I paddled doubles. We ended up coming second on the first day. Um, and I remember the second day, um, the Portuguese guys actually spun us out at the start and we missed the front two groups. We chased for like an hour and a half or whatever. We got back to the second group and then I just punctured seriously badly because I couldn't handle that kind of distance. And then after that, we ended up racing like three consecutive marathons on three, three consecutive weekends. So we went and did, I can't remember. There was one in, in Austria. We did the Graz Marathon. We did one in, and then we went and did the Berlin Marathon, which was fantastic. So it must have been around... 84, 85, it was when um, Checkpoint Charlie had just come down, the wall had just come down, the whole of euphoria in Berlin, you know, and we and that marathon paddled between East and West Berlin. So that, that was an amazing one, and that was a, that was one to remember. Yeah. Yeah, and you spent a lot of time in Europe, obviously, racing around, and how many years do you think you went out to Europe to compete? Um... Probably about, well, I did eight 
um, sellers. And then probably another four or five, no more, because I did white water racing as well. So maybe six times after that, I suppose. So probably 14. Yeah, 14 years in Europe. That's pretty cool. So what, what, how old were you when you started to go up there to compete? Were you like 17, 18? Yeah, well, that's it. So the first one was in that 77. So that was that first sprint tour. And then after that, I went and I did a bit of racing in, in England as well. At one stage, I went over and tried to make the Irish team so I could race at the Worlds. And that was a bit of a debacle as well. So I lived in London for a year. I went across and trained with the Irish. Actually did their team selection, made the team. And then a couple of weeks before, so, and I actually ended up spending the whole winter in London training in the winter, which wasn't really that cool, but no, um, especially for this. So. And, and then a couple of weeks before the, um, the race, they sent me a message saying, look, you really aren't welcome. You have to be out of South Africa for two years before we'll allow you to race in the team. So that was it. That was a big disappointment. Yeah, I can imagine it must have been hard, obviously, being a South African at the time and wanting to compete in the sport. You would have had to be looking for that different nationality to compete for. Obviously, you've got your heritage and where you're from. And it would have been something I've even looked into doing that because I'm, I'm technically half Italian. And uh, well, I am half Italian. I can't really say I'm technically. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so I, I've actually looked into that previously for like different sporting things. And I was like, I'd just rather race for Australia. And I didn't didn't really need to compete and didn't really need to get that second passport, but it was definitely something that you guys would have been looking at at that time. Yeah. 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 It was, yeah. And you, we've got this, uh, this video of you um, competing at the crocodile river marathon. And yeah, this is the infamous moment where you're, you do your little Eskimo roll and then you come back up over the trees. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to show you. And was this something you did regularly? Well, that croc marathon, I um, I did that quite a few years in a, um, and they had low level bridges as well that you could roll under and gain quite a bit of time on, on everyone else. No one really knew how to roll a K1. Um, so here it is. Me, so I, I had an advantage there. You see, I'm wearing a helmet there. One of the years before this, I actually cracked my head open on one of those low level bridges or, or rocks underneath a low level bridge. And who's this coming behind you? I don't know, someone who can't roll. <laughs> 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 that's quite that's impressive Mark though that's Mark that's Perry. Mark Perro, I think yeah okay well, I hope he watches this and you can tell him um oh, but no, yeah. Mark, Mark died a couple of weeks ago hey he had a plane, plane crash tragically yeah. oh I'm sorry yeah I did I no. did actually see that yeah. now Mark is a well he was a fantastic paddler he's um that Olympics team we talked about in Barcelona he paddled the thousand meter for South Africa in that in that Olympics yeah, Mark and I had a, a lot of great races together because we were living in the same area at the, at the time. We both lived in, in the Transvaal, so I raced him a lot. He was a seriously good competitor. He used to, he used to kill himself to win. That's the so. first day results, and then you've, you've done it on the second day as well. But was it something that you were doing like regularly, like and no one else was doing it? I think this must be here. Yeah, yeah. So I'd um, intentionally I'd rolled. On at this particular race, oh, probably five years in a row, I suppose. Um, yeah. And I mean, rolling helped me in quite a few of the other races. So if you did happen to fall out, then I mean, you could roll back up again. Whereas some of the other guys, if they fell out, well, in fact, all of the other guys, if they fell out, they had no chance. You know, they'd have to swim to the bank and waste a few. But, 
Was it something you practiced or was it just something you did in like wild water or slalom or just? Well, because, because I did that much, um, you know, tripping, you'd sort of had to have a pretty much bulletproof role if you're doing that kind of tripping because you don't want to fall out in those rapids, you know? You'll also notice I'm paddling with wings in this race. Now, in these, in these days, um, everyone to paddle with flat water, paddle with flat blades in, in rough water. Yeah. So this was, it was quite an interesting story. So with wings, one year in Spain, um, Nello actually had a set of green wings that were Rasmussen wings. And yeah. I think they hadn't even caught it in the market really. And Nello had a pair and I took them back from um, Spain back to South Africa and we um, started making them in South Africa. So I adopted wings really, really early. I'd, um, the transition for me was good. So there were a good couple of years there where I was using wings where the other guys were using flat blades and that made a big, big difference. And what were, the, what were the, um, the boats like when you first started paddling? Were they all wooden or was it all flat blades or how did it, how did it progress? Because obviously yeah, I just know carbon, carbon vacuum sealed boats and wing paddles. <laughs> yeah, so the first, um, the first boat I had was called the Lymphjord and it was a Struer boat. Um, big wide thing. So the widest point was at, at the seat. And um, it was made out of um, chopped strand fiberglass and resin hull. And then it had a wooden structure on the top deck with canvas. So yeah. That was, the, that was the racing boat. Yeah. And how heavy were those? Oh, that was probably 20 kilograms, I suppose. Yeah, right. So they were heavy and were they, were they quite strong though? Well, those boats were because they were made for the rivers, you know? Yeah. And then how did it gradually progress from there? Cause when did, when did like, so you had those wooden boats, but then when did you start seeing it come to fiberglass and plastic and then molded versions? And then obviously was it, did you, was the first boat you paddled like a foam block or was it, how, can you explain well, like the general yeah, progression? Pretty, pretty interesting, you know, so it's, um, Kayaks were, were slightly different to um, surf skis. Um, so kayaks, there was a couple of good manufacturers actually um, in the Durban area because there were that many of those boats sold. Um, one in particular, Gordon Rowe, who had Kayak Center. He was pretty innovative and he started using materials like um, nylon and dylon in the boats so that the fiberglass didn't fall apart when you hit, hit rocks. I mean, obviously after that it progressed to Kevlar and then to make it more rigid was carbon. And then from ordinary general purpose resins, it went to vinyl ester resin. That was quite a big jump, it made both a yeah. lot stronger. And now, of course, there's epoxies, which are even better. But surf skis developed more along the surf, um, surfboard line. So it would be polystyrene shaped um, and then glassed on the outside. So it wasn't made in a mold. So there were a lot of individual designs, but in fact, all of them were individual designs in the very early days um, before pop-outs were made in animal. And the guys that were really instrumental in that was Tony Scott. He sort of started the surf ski paddles, the, the surf skis that looked like the ones we paddle today. So similar rocker, similar shape, um, you know, a little flat section in it to make the boat run. Um, yeah, so it's, but besides Tony Scott, there were a couple of other guys that used to influence it. There was Devin Warlock, who I mentioned before. He used to make slightly different shaped boats. But yeah, that's how sort of things progressed. 
Yeah, and then you had obviously different um, types of boats that are coming in now. And I know you you paddle um, ocean built now as well. How how has that progression been? Because obviously you've had a lot of say in design probably along your way. Like how has it been fun designing and helping um, with that? Well, I love that. It's it's more a renegade little brand. It's not a mainstream brand at all, um, which is nice. It's yeah, nice. I like it because um, I've got a little bit of input. Um, Brendan paddles them as well. Um, what they are is they're designed by um, a nautical engineer, so a, a yacht designer basically. It's a guy from Far Yachts. Um, Britain Ward designs them, and yeah. he'll do all the modelling and the tank testing and all that. But then It'll come to me and then um, Brendan and I will paddle them and, and we'll give them feedback. We'll say, look, this boat's too wet or the seat needs to move forward or you know, it doesn't turn well enough or it's not directionally stable enough or whatever it is. And then we make changes from there. So, But it's actually really interesting, the, the whole process. It is quite fun designing and making shapes. Like I know I'm, I'm lucky enough to like obviously work with Gary on my, on my paddle brand and then work with um, Starboard on all their race boards. And oh, okay. it's quite yeah. cool. Yeah, it's quite cool. Yeah, same kind of thing. You do your your mold, like you do your practice. Like you have your wooden molds, and you you have your your CNC cutouts, and you have obviously with the uh, the guys in the workshop in Starboard. Like we go and we like we want to chop this off, and they they go and chop that off, and then you try it. You like it makes it faster, makes it slower. Yeah. And then you like we have that yeah. sort of old school mentality of just like chopping things and just seeing if it works. If it doesn't work, put it back on, and then you eventually just make the progress <laughs> like that. It's not like like you make a mold and you wait three weeks and then you try it and then. It's like it's like a kind of a bit more hands-on approach, and it's really fun to see yeah. how like different changes, like in rocker or different changes in like uh, angles on the side of the boats or whatever it is, like just makes such a big difference. And it's a really cool process. I really enjoy it. No, you're absolutely right. That, it makes a huge difference, and I, I I love it as well. It's yeah, it's it's good to see it coming to fruition as well. You know, so if you get something and it changes and it works, it's great. Hey? Yeah, it's such a cool it's such a cool experience to be able to do. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your, when you, when you were growing up as well? Cause I know, I think I know that you were, you, you were once, um, hired to sail a boat from South Africa to Mauritius. You were actually in the South African army, if that's, if that's right. Like, can you tell us a bit of those yeah, stories? Hey, I wasn't, I wasn't hired to sail, to sail a boat. Um, I actually just voluntarily went on a, a boat as a crew. Of course you did. We left from Durban. <laughs> We went from Durban and we were, the, the plan was we were going to get to Mauritius. Um, it, was, it was a disaster. I mean, as we were leaving Durban, the engine, um, the gearbox seized on it. And yeah. the guy said, oh, well, we'll just fix it at sea. And we just kept sailing. But it effectively meant we didn't have an engine. And that guy sailing it had no idea, absolutely no idea. And we only had a sextant, so there were no sat-navs or anything like that. Um, <laughs> so how did you know where you were going? Well, to be honest, we didn't. We were, we were actually really lucky. We bumped into um, a boat called the SA Vile, which was a container ship that used to do shipping. And after like four days, because of that big current I was telling you about earlier, we were actually south of Cape Town and we left from Durban, you know. Um, so, it, and he, he, he gave us a fix, but we were just trailing a log. And we had the direction on the compass and we were just plotting, you know, we were doing 120 Ks a day or whatever it was. We were just plotting it on the chart <laughs> where we thought we were. And, yeah. and the guy who was meant to be the navigator who was operating the sextant, I'd, 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 yeah, 
I think it was his first time or whatever, but he, he wasn't getting it right. Because <laughs> he was pinpointing pretty much where it was plotted on the chart, you know. <laughs> but um, we were, there was an Israeli guy with us who um, was a mariner and, um, and he took over navigation and so he started using a sextant. And we ended up, because we were running out of food, and, and it took us 23 days to get to Reunion, you know, and we were only planning on get, you know, being at sea for 10. So we just ended up fishing and catching fish. So we were running out of food. So we weren't going to go to Mauritius. We, we were going to stop at Reunion. But we didn't have any charts for Reunion. We got there and it was solid. It was probably six foot wave breaking, but a solid wave. And we got to a little port called St. Pierre, which is a little fishing port in the south of Reunion. It's actually a fantastic surf spot, like world-class waves there. But um, the entrance through this coral, um, it was blowing offshore, so we had to tack to go in um, without a motor. And we'd misread it a little, and we tacked too far, and a wave picked us up and ran us onto the reef. And so we ended up, <laughs> ended up getting erected on reunion. And, and I had a ski on the boat with me, and I had a surfboard and some clothes, so I just jumped into my ski and paddled in. And then got a boat and they came out and but by the time we got back out there with the boat, they'd managed to get the the thing off the off the reef, so they'd sort of backed the sails and managed to inch it off. But the boat was trashed and we ended up staying there for three months, I think. Which was a great spot to stay because you could surf every morning just outside the front of <laughs> and yeah. it was a great spot called um Silu, St. Louis, so L U I which is a world-class wave as well and and in those days i think it was a, there was an aussie guy that lived there in a tiny little shack and he made boards and that was about it there were only a few few guys that surfed it so that was yeah. that was that was quite good i mean anyway so once once that boat got um, repaired um the deal was that we'd sell it to mauritius and we'd get off in mauritius um so we sailed to mauritius and the guy that owned the boat had a bond that we had to have paid him because if we cause any shit on the boat, then he's got this bond that he can fly us home, basically. Um, yeah. And he never paid us the bond, so we got off the boat, but we had to start doing odd jobs on the islands. So and I skippered some boats um, and ended up, in fact, an Aussie made a mind, um, got on his boat, and he was just traveling around. We went to all the little islands above Mauritius. I had a ski there and I paddled all the way around Mauritius. We did a bit of surfing. It was a great trip. And then um, I sailed the boat back for a guy who had had a heart attack. He was coming back with his family and he was, was just recovering. So I sailed his boat back to Durban sort of just before the cyclone season. But yeah, that's, that's that story. <laughs> so, but what made you want to do that and how old were you? I, was, I think I just finished university, so I was probably... 20. Yeah. 21. Yeah. You just decided to get on a boat and go to Mauritius. Yeah. Well, actually, I might be slightly older than 21. No, actually, yeah. yeah 21. Um, yeah, what, what happened to that? They selected a life saving team at the beginning of that year. And then the Americans were touring only the next year. Um, so, and, and that's the only reason I had a ski on there because I thought while I'm away, I, at least I'll be paddling a ski and doing a bit of training. Um, and that ski was fantastic because it meant I had mobility in Mauritius. I could paddle from one 
ties to another which yeah <laughs> so yes that's good and when you and this sa army is that how long how long did you participate in that well it's yeah but yeah military career wasn't the very best actually so um i got called up to go to the army i'd end up going to the police force because there was internal you know the soweto riots had just happened in 76 when i was going in 77 so there was a lot of disturbance internally in the country um so they were taking people into the police force from the army so i spent two years in the police force i was a really dodgy policeman i wasn't good at all <laughs> gary gary wouldn't he like to hear this but <laughs> I'm yeah, sure, I'm uh, sure. I eventually got sort of maneuvered out or kicked out, I suppose, out of the police station I was in, and I had to go and guard political prisoners. Um, that turned to custard. They were meant to get solitary confinement. I used to let them out, and we used to talk at night. <laughs> anyway, the guy that took over after me ended up getting mugged, and 17 of them escaped, and there was a court case. And anyway, so long story, I ended up being not being put on the police reserve. So my two years service would have been finished. I got sent back to the army. So I had to go and do basics again in the army and then camps from there onwards. So yeah, not, not the very best. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't your favorite time, but you had to do it, it sounds like. So it was just a part and parcel of the time. Um, well, in those couple of years, it wasn't bad at all because I'd, um, they looked favorably on sportsmen and I was making teams. And so I spent a lot of time traveling and things and paddling. So. And actually, it wasn't that bad, but as a policeman and, and a military guy, it was a bit of a failure, really. <laughs> That's all right. As long as you enjoyed your paddling, that was the main thing. But when, you're, when you were doing your paddling, obviously, you were involved heavily in surf lifesaving as well, and you did a lot of events there. Can you walk us through some of your, your bigger moments in surf lifesaving? Yeah. Well, I was at um, Pirates Club in Durban. So Pirates was sort of the second biggest club in South Africa. So it's... There were some really good competitors in there. Um, a couple of names you might know. Um, there was Julian Taylor, who spent a bit of time. Might have been before your time. Anyway, before my time, yeah. Um, yeah, there was some really good swimmers um, in that club. We had strong ski paddlers. Um, the competitor club was Durban Surf, and that's where Oscar and Herman were originally. Durban Surf ended up falling apart a little bit towards the latter end. Um, Herman actually came across to, to Paris where I was. So Herman and I paddled a lot of double ski together. Um, we had a fantastic craft rescue team, which the um, discipline you guys don't have here, but it's a short little fat boat um, that you paddle. You paddle out to go and collect a patient. The patient lies on it and you paddle back with him and you catch a wave back. So, we had, a, we had a very, very good paddling team for that. Um, Oscar was in it at one stage, Herman, that guy Grant Williston that I mentioned earlier. Sorry, what is it exactly? It's a, it's, it's a rescue craft, so it's got little handles on it. Um, yeah. And then you draw on the beach for the paddler and you draw for the patient. And the other two guys just sit on the beach waiting um, just to carry you up the beach afterwards, pretty much. So, so it's like a rescue tube rescue with, with a little paddling boat. Yeah, 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 with a short little fat craft. What's it um, called? It's called um, a rescue craft. Rescue so it's got craft four handles essay. on it. Yeah. Yeah, right. I've never heard this. It's actually a really fun event. 
best you craft, man. Maybe, maybe be in lifesaving.co.za and I'll, I'll see if I can find it because I always love finding yeah. out new things because I've never, never even heard of this. Yeah. And, and, and South Africa was a big event. It was, it was one of the prized ones to, to win, you know. Um, but what always happened with it was that, that the good paddlers didn't have a big advantage because they both never. That's it. That's, that's a rescue craft. Hang on, so it's it? got. Yeah. yeah. It's got handles front and back. It's yeah. got a little seat. And then the guy lies on the front of it. So the patient lies on the front where that rescue is and holds on to yeah. the handles. Come back. No, okay, so it's like when, a it's like a surf ski board. Exactly. It's like a it's like a big chunky stand-up um sup. Yeah. And then large but seat on it. Huh, there you go. Well, there you go. Do they do still do that event in South Africa? Um, I don't know. I presume they do. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. But, and then, sorry, go on. But what happened is Oscar always fancied himself as the best, you know, but every single time Oscar paddled or was the patient would lose because he was just so heavy and big. <laughs> and you got no <laughs> and you got no advantage for, from from being a strong paddler because those things just don't run, you know. So yeah. a lightweight, short little guy with a choppy stroke is the guy that that you want, you know. Yeah. <laughs> And did you yeah, have much success in, in other events? Oh, double ski, we won a few team ski, which was an interesting one as well. So it was like um, team swim, you know? So you would draw a partner and they'd have a, so they'd have an individual surf ski race and then they'd have a team's race held exactly the same way, but you just raced um, with a partner. And they aggregated it. So if you came second and you came fourth, they would just add the points. Whoever had the highest points would win. So that was quite a good race. Um, it was a bit different. Yeah. And then did you compete in like single skis as well? Like who did you do the double yeah, skis? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, no singles as well, obviously. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't think I ever won an essays. Actually, I might have. I'm not sure. But I'd. Don't think I ever won a, um, a surf ski essay title. I mean, yeah. I might have won you. I'm, to be honest, I can't remember all the, the details. But Oscar won most of them. Herman yeah. won a few. And then obviously, I mean, in surf, anything can happen. There were a few outsiders that used to come in every now and again. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been an interesting time, obviously, racing against Oscar. Who were the other big names in surf life saving at that time? Or was it just Oscar sort of took off? Oh, there Oscar were tons of them, um, who were the names? Well, out of the surf ski paddlers, or who are you thinking? I mean, um, Tony Scott was obviously the, the main man for a long, long, long time. And even yeah. when he was in his early 40s, he was still really competitive. Hank's father was, um, was, a, was a good paddler. He always seemed to work out how to stuff it up, though, in those races. <laughs> yeah. So he was an interesting one. Yeah. So that's that's Lee McGregor. He he coaches now. He's he's definitely one of the characters of the sport. Eh? Yeah. So it's, I had quite a few. I mean, I trained with him for a while. Um, I always got on really well with him. Um, I remember going out to one marathon trial with him, and it was a it was a long one. It was a three-hour trial. Um, he was probably going the best out of anyone in the country. He was absolutely flying. We started the race and we went around a little island and I was on the left-hand side of him and he went around the left of the island 
everyone else went to the right because it was shorter. And I kept on saying to him, hey, D, you sure you want to go this way? You know, I know we'll come out 200 meters ahead. I'm so fast. We're coming. <laughs> anyway, we came out <laughs> after the island, three or 400 meters behind them. <laughs> he, he ground back after two hours. We finally got back. Um, and there's a bit of a shuffle around in the group, and I think he realized he wasn't going to win the race, and he just pulled out. So he dragged me all the way back there. Um, he was the, the fastest paddler around. Yeah. Um, he pulled out of the race, jumped in his car, and drove back to Durban. Yeah. This wasn't, wasn't going to be his day to make a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> but, and what did you finish? Was, um, well, I made the team. I think I came third or fourth in that group. And yeah. got selected on the team straight off. And then they had a, a second one for like the marginal guys. But yeah. if he had just stayed there, he would have he would have made the team. Yeah. And with uh with Ocean Ski, we spoke about Peter East London. Was there other big events you were doing um in your time, like in the eighties and early nineties when you were yeah, racing? Yeah, yeah. So so one of the good ones in Durban is um the Scottborough Brighton. It's about a forty five K race and it's held over the winter time. Um and that's normally at the same time as um, the sardine run, which is quite a phenomenon of that coast. It's absolutely incredible. The water just comes alive with sardines and dolphin and all sorts of other game fish and sharks. But it's held at about the same time. You get nice clean swell at that time of the year. Um, so that's, that's one of the big ones. Um, I think the oldest race in the world is Pirates on Schlonger Rocks and Back, which is a, maybe 25 Ks. Somewhere in that percentage, and that's been going since whew, maybe the early 70s or even the late 60s, maybe. Yeah, so um, and then besides that, there were races during the week, there was um, there were there were tons of races that build up races to to those to those big ones, yeah. So what about something like Cape Point? Was that around um, in your era? Yeah, Cape Point came in as, because the Peace London was every second year, and the Cape Point was like the filler race in between each, um, you know, each of those. So it's, um, that's just a one-day race. Why not just a one-day race? It's as long as 55 or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I didn't do many of the Cape Point races. I think I only ever did one. And it was when I might have been in the army when I had to. Well, not had to, but I just wanted to get away. So it was one that I, I went and did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you so there was like there so there was like a few big ones. But were you was there any ones that you like were trying to win at that time, or was it just Cersei was more fun and the marathon was more you were trying to race, or you were just racing? All oh these no, the races were um, competitive. Um, yeah. That in South Africa, the Cersei scene was almost canoeing was more competitive than surf ski always um and it probably still is you know although yeah. surf ski racing might have taken over because everyone crosses over so everyone that paddles that's a, a good paddler does both kayak and and surf ski yeah um yeah that molokai um was one that I would like to have done when I was, you know, in, in the early days. Um, I went over and did two Molokais, but okay. only in the latter years. Yeah. 
And how were those experiences for you? And when, how old were you when you did them? Um, the first Molokai I did was we had just immigrated to New Zealand. And um, I started paddling with a guy, Brendan Horan, who's an absolute character. He's one of the real characters. Of, I mean, he became a politician and he's, but anyway, he's one of those. Um, started paddling with him. He was going to the Molokai and he was trying to encourage me to go. And I said, look, I haven't even got a job, you know, I have to find some work. I can't just arrive here with a young family. I think Brennan was one or two and Sarah was one, you know. Um, anyway, it's about two weeks before the Molokai and, and I'd actually found a job. And he came to me with a, with a ticket. He said, look, I've got some frequent flyer points. I bought you a ticket to the Molokai. So, and in the interim, I'd actually found a job. So I had to phone the company I was going to start with and say, look, if you don't, don't mind, I won't come in on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> what did they say? <laughs> they said, all right. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> so, so I showed over to the Molokai and... Um, I'd arranged to just borrow a ski from Malcolm Hall, who was living in New Zealand at the time, a Southern guy who'd, who'd, who'd done a few. Um, anyway, it, it was a really badly organized affair. I went across on the, the escort boat, which was just a 17-foot Boston whaler the day before. Got there like late night. Jumped oh, my ski in early morning. <laughs> oh, it was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. Yeah. Um, uh, and then started the race and the rudder was sticking. And I think I told you the story. The rudder was sticking and eventually the rudder just fell out. <laughs> yeah. so, that, so, so it was just a bit of metal that was, that yeah. was left. And on every run, I was just slewing off. And so that was a bit of a disaster, that one. And the second and who, time I went... And who did you end up beating? The guy that bought me the ticket. The guy that bought oh. me the ticket, Brendan Horan. So yeah. He ended up beating me by a couple of hundred meters as we were around Chinaman's Wall or whatever it was where it starts getting flat. I saw him in front of me and I couldn't get back to him. But yeah. he never let me live that down. Like every time he ever spoke to me, he was ah, oh, until he beat me in the Molokai. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so yeah, because your whole, because it was like stuck and then all of a sudden the whole rudder just fell off and you were just steering like, yeah, the like was two hours. It was just a little bit of metal in there that held you know, the, the little structure. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> uh, and then we went back. I went back. I think a couple of years later, and so we're talking like nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety-two, three, ninety-four, I suppose, ninety-three, somewhere around there, maybe. Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, went back a couple of years, and later, and I thought I was having a reasonable race. I went a little bit too far off course. And had to come back quite a bit um, towards the end. And went a lot of guys shot up. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of guys shot up on the inside of me mm. and while I was coming back. Um, but I had the advantage of them with the runs early, you know. So I suppose it works both ways. But I ended up rounding the wall. And I think I came 10th that year. I ended up rounding the wall with um, Greg Barton. And funny enough, when it got flat, um, I picked up a little bump coming in and got got just enough on Greg's to hold him off because I wouldn't like to have raced him on the flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was he was an Olympic gold medalist, wasn't he, in the K1000? I think is that right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, he was a legend paddler in in, in those days, like a sprint paddler. Yeah, him and Bellingham, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's been it. And then what what took you to New Zealand um, in the early 90s? Well, we were living in Johannesburg um, at the time. And we had a canoe shop in Johannesburg, which allowed us to have a fantastic lifestyle because you know, we were going to races every, every weekend. And that was part of our work, you know. So, it, And that was in Johannesburg. But I really wanted to get back to the coast. I'd had enough of living away from the coast. Um, yeah. And... Brendan and Sarah had been born. They were they were young, and and Joan and I were chatting one night, and we said, "Well, look, why don't we make a big move? I mean, we're going to have to move back to the coast somewhere, either to Durban or that, or to Cape Town. Why don't we just make a big move?" And um, New Zealand were making quite a big punt for immigration at that stage, so it flew over, had a look, and put my visa application in, got it, and within a month we'd sold everything we sold sold up i'd partnered with canoe concepts with colin simpkins i sold out to him sold the house sold the cars flew over to new zealand yeah and then how long were you i knew quite a a few of the new zealand guys and you know that um, paddled from races in europe like some of the guys you probably don't know the mark scheib and brent clothes and I don't know the names. Ferguson and McDonald were great. Probably no one those faces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're, they're older guys. And I mean, Ferguson is a, a fantastic paddler. He's won quite a few, well, many. In fact, the one year I think he won seven. He was he was like the Mark Spitz of paddling at that stage. I think he had won seven um, Olympic medals in total. But the one year I think he won three or four, and he had won more than Australia had combined. <laughs> Because <laughs> he's told me that story a few times. <laughs> yeah, I think the New Zealanders would love to stick it to Australia about that. <laughs> they would love that story, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah. It was great. <laughs> and, and then you spent a bit of time in New Zealand. Were you living in around Auckland or were you... Yeah, we were in Auckland. Hey? Um, yeah. And in fact, I ended up paddling with Steve Ferguson, who's in Ferguson's son. So we were in the okay. last Saturday club and we paddled doubles together. So Ian Ferguson was the one who won a lot of medals, and then yeah, yeah. I'm surprised you don't know Boothie. I know this. I know the name, but I don't know the story very well. There were two. There was Ferguson and McDonald. Yeah. You should Google them and check them out. They were absolute legends of that of that day. I think they won. I don't know how many world champs and many, many, many gold medals at Olympics, a single and double. Yeah, right. I'll have, might, have to, might have to research them and get them on eventually because, yeah, that's the idea of this is just trying no, to find out fact, more about paddling. Ian Ferguson is a, is a thinker of the sport. Eh? He's a technician. He's a guy that changes stroke. He's, he, he always, he's always thinking of something. He's always thinking of improvement. So he was one of the first guys to get onto wings. So I think the first guy that made big inroads with wings was um, a pommy paddler um, who won um, the world. And then everyone said, well, this is, a, this, this is a good thing, you know? And I think yeah. Ferguson was the first guy to get on. And um, so he had a couple of years jump on everyone with, with wings. Um, he also was a technician. He also developed a method of training, which was based on middle distance running, because at that stage, New Zealand had really good middle, middle distance runners. And I think it was Snell and there was a few. But it was the whole um, idea of interval training and build up with different stages of training. So... And he got onto that early and he'd got a big jump on everyone else and on the, on the whole training side. Then, a funny little story, he developed these pods 
for a K1, which was like a, like a fairing that goes around a bicycle. And he pitched at one of the Olympics with him. And yeah. um, then there was like pandemonium, you know, what do we do with this? These guys are getting such a big advantage because they're so aerodynamic, you know, and they pedal inside this pod. <laughs> yeah, goes over oh, okay. No, I didn't know this either. <laughs> so anyway so what what happened was they had to make a decision and they banned them on the day so he ended up not not using them and the reason they could get around it was because it wasn't commercially available to everyone else yeah right no i never even knew that but ian ferguson, that ian ferguson is um is a thinker of the sport and he's been absolutely well not revolutionary but he's He's definitely one worth talking to if you're thinking of, of a. Yeah, of no, like absolutely. I think it'd be really cool to talk to him. He's been mentioned a couple of times because um, Ian uh, Ivan Lawler mentioned him the other day. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, his son um, Steve Ferguson went to the Olympics as a swimmer and as a paddler. Yeah, it's pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah, so he was a breaststroke swimmer. And. And when you, were, when you were going from, like just because you bring up technology again, when you were going from flat blades to wing paddles, mm-hmm. what was the difference you noticed? Because I've actually never really, I've obviously paddled with a flat blade on a big sea kayak on a holiday somewhere, you know, but yeah, never yeah, actually yeah, yeah. raced with one. What was the big difference at the time when you changed over? Well, it's, those early wings um, held a huge amount of water. So they held a lot more water than um, a flat blade. A flat blade, when you put the blade in, the, um, in, you're the guy that has to maneuver that blade in order to make your style um, the way you want it. So if you're pulling away from the boat, you have to actually move that paddle away. A flat blade wants to go all over the place in the water. So it wants to do this. It wants to yeah. shudder as it's coming back. So you, whereas a wing locks on and it does that itself. So in the water, it's a lot smoother. It catches a lot more water. The early wings had a bit of a V in them, and the widest point was reasonably close to um, the shaft. Mm. So the balance point on those wings weren't weren't that great, and to get that right, there was a lot of layback on them. So if you look at the paddle down the shaft, the blade laid a long way back. So you lost a lot of water out the bottom of them. So it felt quite different to the wings of today. Um, yeah, okay. But, yeah, but... Even so, I mean, you could still, as soon as I got into wings, I could tell that I was going faster. I was using bigger muscle groups easier. I was, my stroke rate slowed. Yeah. And how did you end up, and so how long did you live in New Zealand for? And then when did you make your way over to Perth? Lived in New Zealand about 10 years, I suppose. So it's quite, quite a while. Yep. Um, yeah, New Zealand was an interesting one as well because when I first got there, I had a Fen Millennium and it was brand new. In those days, the Millennium had just come out. Um, yeah. But I think I was the only guy with a Molokai type ski, you know. I think all the other skis were um, around the can skis or some kind of ad- adaption of a Burton, you know, for long distance racing. Like that, but still with a bit of a, a duckbill at the front of it. Yeah. Um, and then we started um, doing quite a bit of paddling out of Takapuna, which is a little bay in sort of the heart of, of Auckland, really, on the, on the North Shore. Um, and quite a, 
interesting guy. He was an anesthetist, Darcy Price, um, who did quite a bit of paddling, got involved, and he put together a little series of races, and I sort of helped him out with that. We did quite a bit together. And that little series actually generated into a club down there, and we did quite a bit of um, training out of Takpuna in a in a in a squad, and it, it grew quite rapidly. And eventually, they started getting like 200 people to those little races on Thursday nights or Tuesday nights. I think it was Tuesday nights. Um, I think they still do it. Yeah, yeah, I know they do. Yeah, and I've I've been back a couple of times because my parents live there. So yeah. and whenever I'm back, and have a panel with the guys. Yep. And then when you made your way over to Perth, how was the paddling scene here? I know you, you get down at Hillary's most days and, well, not most days, but some of the days of the week and paddle with everyone, obviously when COVID-19 is not happening. But um, how is how has the whole experience been over here in the Perth paddling scene? Because I, I know you came over here and you did a downwind with all the WA guys and you, you basically, they were like, who's this guy? And you smashed them all. Um, how has how is it obviously been emigrating to Australia and joining the paddling community over here? Well, it's, I mean, the weather here was obviously better than New Zealand. Um, so it allows you to paddle all year round comfortably. I mean, you can in New Zealand paddle all year round, but um, the winters are wet and, and, and cold. And you're probably limited to paddling on the lake in, in the winter times. I mean, as you know, Perth's fantastic as a downwind. You know, mecca it's it's great the wind comes in pretty much every afternoon in summer um but again when i first got here there was no one doing downwinds really um there were guys like really good paddlers like reese baker and those kind of guys paddling skis but they'd be doing you know around the cans type type training there were a couple of small races i think that the biggest sort of ski race was the one that finishes at Cottesloe that starts in Mosman Park. So you paddle half of it up the river. Okay. And almost no downwind at all, you know. Do they still do <laughs> so, that? Um, I think that I think the last one was a couple of years ago. Yeah. I know Brennan does it as a training run fairly often. I've seen his messages come up a few times. I don't think I've actually done that one. So I'm not that keen on yeah. paddling the first twenty K in the flat and then doing the last ten in the <laughs> ocean. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um yeah, so that's what the scene was when the first got here. And there were also there were almost no Molokai's at all. There were very, very few Molokai's. It was all it was all um around the Kanskis, yeah. And how have you seen it develop since then? Because obviously it's a lot bigger now. Like every day you look out in the summer, there's probably a hundred skis doing a downwind. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Eh? Yeah, yeah. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And it's it's the obvious sport, eh? I mean, when the wind blows, what do you want to do? You don't want to, I mean, you can't surf, you can't dive, you can't, you know. And catching runs is great, eh? so why not? Eh? It's a good way to stay fit. It's, the whole social aspect is quite good as well. Eh? Yeah, and then you get out, my, like probably, I think it's like Tuesday, Thursday, Arvo's with the squad down at Hillary's, and you get out there and have a paddle, you go in and out through the through the harbour there. And is that is that something you just really enjoy doing? Like, you, obviously, you'll, you'll paddle probably forever now. <laughs> Yeah, it, um, it started quite small. So there were three or four original guys and we used to just, uh, uh, over the winter time, so it's only from sort of May onwards, I suppose, that we used to get into the, into the marina. Um, and then it just slowly grew. People started tagging along. And so it's become, well, it's not a formalized training squad at all, but it's, 
it's sort of structured in that I try and put together at least some kind of, um, you know, program. So I'd just be doing like a lactic acid session on one night and a muscle endurance session on another all the time. We're trying to build it up, you know. Um, so it's sort of semi-structured. Um, and it's lots of intervals so everyone can catch up, you know, during the, the period. So it's catered, catered for everyone, really. Yeah. But that's, but that's grown. I mean, there's probably 30 or 40 guys that... At most of those, and if you look at the whole combined group that goes down, there's, there's easily 100 odd, 120, I suppose. Yeah, it must be quite cool for you to see the growth in the sport, obviously, since coming here in 2000, I guess, around then, and there was only like three or four guys maybe doing downwinds yeah. to now there's probably, I don't know, 150, 200 members of IOP or maybe more. Yeah, no, it's great. It is good. It's yeah. fantastic, actually. And that whole structure with the IOP is good. I like it. It's relaxed. It's the guys that run it um, are in there for the right reasons. They look after the paddlers. They, I mean, Saturday morning sessions with Dean to keep everything going. It's fantastic. The way they do it is good. They don't try and make money out of races. They just lay them on. It's it's great. And, and what it's is really, it really welcoming. Yeah, and what is it about downward paddling that you like so much? Sorry, you have big breaks when you talk, so I, I never know when to jump in. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Jump in. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so how... I just like... I like the variety of it. I mean, you'll know, you never ever paddle two downwinds that are the same, do you? No. Like, a couple of nights ago when it was blowing westerly, we went out to the island, caught a couple of waves out there, came back with a few bumps. Um, a few days before that, it was blowing westerly and howling westerly. We paddled out to Trig Marker and came back in, in a solid squall with good swell under us. And we were nose diving, you know, so, and we were running off right instead of left, you know. So it's fantastic. It's like everyone is slightly different. I mean, yeah. you paddle sometimes and there's dolphins out there. Sometimes the water is crystal clear. You can see the bottom and there's just gentle little runs behind you. Sometimes it's the howling doctor at 25 knots and you just get fantastic runs all the way and you paddle five strokes the whole training session. Yeah, it's really cool. And what motivates yeah. you to get out there now? Because I know you obviously have a family, you work, you have all these different things going on and you still get out for a paddle a few times a week or every day, I'm not sure. Um, what, 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 wants, what makes you want to get out there? I just love it. Eh? I have always liked swimming or surfing or paddling or so... It's the obvious thing to do, yeah, with the conditions. And yeah, I feel good afterwards. It's it's nice. Yeah. And it's social, eh? There's quite a quite a good little scene happening down there. It's good. Yeah, it is it is really good. Um, is there anything you wanted to add in before we jumped off? There's is there any other stories you want to tell us? Nah, that's it. You've had heard enough, I think. I don't know. There's always more stories in there, I'm sure. <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> All right. Well, mate, I really appreciate your time today. Okay, Bethy. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, just to everybody out there, out there who's listening and watching, um, Spotify um, and Apple Podcasts if you want to listen, and Michael Booth on Facebook with the Boothcast section with all the videos. So you can check all those out. Sean, thanks again for all your time. Pleasure, eh? and good luck to you, and hopefully your racing starts soon, eh? Uh, yeah, I really hope so too, but I'm not I'm sure that's going to happen. So maybe the virtual <laughs> yeah. races might be the new thing.
Oh no! Don't say that. I yeah. know. Well, like, yeah. Well, when are we going to open up if there's no? Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's just it's all unknown. It's one of the hardest periods I think of my life because I can't. Plan well, that's what anything. I was going to say. How how are you coping with it? Eh? Um, yeah. I guess it was hard initially because obviously it was unknown. Like one minute you're you're racing and you're planning and you're sort of in that that mode yes. where you like have your off season, you start training again and you're planning to go away and do, I was, I was planning the way to go, go away four months for like three days ago. And now I'm at home for an indefinite period. So it, it's hard, but it's also kind of cool as well because we get this break that everyone has to have. So it's like, I'm not like, I feel like I'm, I'm missing out because other guys are getting out there and racing and proving themselves. And so I get to have a sort of a break. And now I think I realize more than ever that I kind of like paddling for paddling and I like training for training, not just like for racing and tra training for a goal. Um, that's been yeah. one cool thing. And I think it's been a kind of a calming period as well. I get like a, a break without really like, you know, like it's just a, a really, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, are you still, are you still managing to keep yourself motivated? Are you training enough for you? I'm still, I've, I've obviously changed my training a lot. So now I'm more so doing um, just fitness training. So like whatever I wake up and do, like yesterday I went for like a 10K run, but like on, on Saturday I did a 10K time trial and an outrigger. I paddle my surf ski sometimes. I, I go for a foil down when if the wind comes up, but just, yeah, and I might do yeah. some like workout yeah. sessions in the backyard, you know, like, so just really different stuff to what I'm used to. Like I've been able to train with Christy actually for the first time, like ever, because That's normally nice. I'm... Okay. Normally I'm training for a goal or training for something. Whereas now it's like, oh, well, yeah. yeah, we can go do that. Why not? So I'll like, we'll go for a run and I'll run back and then we'll run forward and run back and run forward. So it's, it's yeah. been kind of cool to do something different like that. Now I noticed you did the Rodney swim. Yeah. Well, that was kind of yeah. cool that we actually did that in the end. I saw Gary out there at the end of the yeah. race. Yeah. Yeah. Did you go over as well? Well, it's... It's a good mate of mine, um, Paul Blackbeard, who was at Pirates, Life Saving Club. Yeah. And he's an unbelievable swimmer, and he has been for, and he's one of the guys that really, really missed out on the Olympics because he was, he, he was that good. Um, he, he, he swam at solo, so I yeah. paddled for him. And oh, I have okay. done it for the last six or seven years. Yeah. That's a fun, that's a fun yeah. paddle. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Fold yourself at the end of it, don't you? <laughs> Sitting yeah. on a little flat plastic ski. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I used to swim a lot when I was younger. So um, it was, yeah, I just jumped back in the pool a, a month or so before and did a couple of sessions a week down there with um, Rick at, at Challenge. And yeah, yeah just, just got fit and did it. Um, as for, just for, I guess, something to, to challenge myself in because I guess I'm always chasing these certain events where I, and I miss out on these things. So I was like, nah, I'm just definitely doing it this year. It's a good race, eh? Yeah, yeah, except something very, very cool. I wish we could do a surf ski race actually out to the island as well. I think that would be a cool one on a, on a good um, westerly, or oh, good easterly, sorry. Well, you know, it's, the guys do it, well, not that often, but every now and again, they paddle out in the morning with the easterly and then paddle back in the afternoon with the west. Yeah, I know, I have to do it. I'm, I'm hoping that I get a, a good day one time next summer and I get, it, get to get out there and do it. Good one. Okay, Bertie. See ya. All right. Cheers, mate. I'll talk to you later on. See ya. Cheers. Man.